All right, so uh, we got something in the mail that said Sunday is National Hummus Day. And uh, so I thought, well, if everybody else doesn't realize that, it's kind of my job to let everybody know. So if you have any special hummus in your life, you know, you might want to let it know today that it's, a, it's its special day. Uh, no, seriously, it's Mother's Day, and I uh, want to wish Happy Mother's Day to all our mothers. And I uh, want to remind all of those who may be particularly sons to remember to say something to your mother. Uh, if you haven't done that, please go do that. Uh, but uh, Happy Mother's Day. Mothers uh, are special and important to all of us, and it's an important role and uh, a sacrificial work and one that deserves acknowledgement and the praise that you'll get today. 1 Samuel chapter 28, I want to begin reading in verse 11. 1 Samuel 28 and verse 11. It says, Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a god coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed his, with his face to the ground and paid homage. So this is the scene where King Saul is in great distress because he's going to come into a battle with the Philistines. And Samuel has died, and the Lord won't answer Saul. So Saul decides to go to a medium and call Samuel up from the dead. And in verse 15, Samuel says, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? You see, Samuel has departed from this life, and yet Samuel continues to live. So he's no longer serving as a prophet in the same way, but he is still living. So he reluctantly answers, Samuel's, uh, answers Saul's questions, but in the process... He raises a number of questions for us, like what on earth is going on here in this whole deal with the medium and uh, Samuel rising from the dead. So uh, we're going to talk about a little bit about these kinds of things in our Q&A morning. I need to get up and get a clicker. <clears throat> it is our Q&A morning, and uh, I want to remind you of what this means. Uh, we are going over questions that you have previously submitted in writing. Uh, I want to remind you, even if we've talked about it, that doesn't mean I remember. If you see me get my phone out and type something into my phone, that's when you know you're good. I used to do this with index cards, okay? And I would write everything down on an index card, you know, phone numbers, uh, amounts of money, uh, different thoughts I had, and there would be index cards all over our house. And uh, so Sarah just, she kind of got tired of that. So now we've change to the phone and the phone keeps everything and remembers everything. If you see me write it on my phone, great, I've got it. Otherwise, I might not remember. So send me an email, uh, do something like that, and we'll, we'll get your question answered. But I want to remind you that I do reserve veto power on all the questions. Okay? If there's a question that I think for whatever reason might not be beneficial or if I just don't know the answer or wouldn't be able to say anything that would be worthwhile, I'll try to get back to you about it, but we might not talk about it here. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about three questions that center around death. There's three separate questions, but I think they tie together pretty well. And I'll warn you that when we get done with this session, I'm not going to completely answer any of the questions because I can't. I only have a limited amount of information. Uh, but I want to at least put some passages in front of us and think through it with you. The first question is, uh, what happens when we die? I've been asked this question more than once. Uh, once it was asked on a, a phone machine, a answering machine message on our phone. I want to remind, we've got people who are listening to us, uh, both watching online and, and listening to us after the fact. If you have a question, we'd love to hear from you. So leave it as a message on the phone, even if it, like this one that asked me this, it might be a few months before we get to it. Uh, we will get to it, but feel free to be a part of, uh, of our Q&A as well. 
but I've also been asked this question by one of you, and so I thought, well, we need to talk about this and put this all together. So uh, what happens when we die? And the gist of the question is, uh, where do we go? What happens to the spirit? How does this all work in light of the judgment and all of that? So in the Old Testament, the Bible describes the grave with the word Sheol, the realm of the dead. And that's similar to the idea in the New Testament of Hades, or the realm of the dead in the Greek word. And that's the place where the dead reside. And that's the reason in verse 15 here, uh, Samuel says, why have you disturbed me by bringing it up? He is in a different place with a different kind of existence. He is not there as a prophet anymore on earth, but he is somewhere else. He is in Sheol, or the realm of the dead, or the grave. And what happens in the Old Testament is there, there seems to be this thought that when people go to the grave or go to Sheol, there's not really much thought or understanding or involvement with the living world. So uh, this is Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Sounds like a great place, right? Okay, there, there's nothing going on there. In other words... Uh, I think what Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes 9 is that you better get your business done now while you're alive. Because when you're dead, you're not going to have time to do it. You're not going to have opportunity to do it anymore. So it puts an emphasis and an urgency on life now. But that description of Sheol is, uh, is rather depressing because there's a sense that maybe there's not even any consciousness in the grave. Or here is Hezekiah praying to God. He says, this is Isaiah 38, 18 and 19. For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living he thanks you as I do this day. So Hezekiah has heard he's going to die and he's praying to live because, you know, what can I do for you when I'm in the grave? I can't praise you anymore. I can't hope in you anymore. So he is saying this in sort of a poetic way, save my life, because then I can praise you and have gratitude and be hopeful. So that's the Old Testament has this picture of Sheol, sort of murky and uh, sort of like maybe this is the end of everything. I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 10. In the New Testament, things are a little bit different. Uh, there is an affirmation in the New Testament that death is not the end of all of these things. Now, one of the things I really want to emphasize is that from Old and New Testament, just because people are no longer living physically does not mean they cease to exist. Okay, so even Samuel is brought back. Okay, he continued to exist. He says, you disturbed me, but he was in a different kind of state. And so in the New Testament, you have the same idea. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is a verse to kind of chew on. Because he says, don't fear those who all they can do is kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. So there is a part of you, the soul, that lives on even when the body is dead. That's what he's saying. And the one to fear is not the one who can kill the body but cannot really exterminate you or cannot eliminate your existence. The one to fear is the one who can destroy both body and soul. I believe that's a reference to God the Father. He is saying, fear him. Fear God, don't just fear man. But the idea there is... There is a different kind of life that will continue even when the body is dead. That's what Jesus is saying. So you may die, you may be killed for your faith, but that's not the end of you. And that's the point here, that's the focus. So even outside the resurrection of the body, Jesus is not talking about the resurrection of the body here. What Jesus is saying is, outside of that, fear God because God has more power to truly end life. Okay, Not just to end the physical life of the body. So, 
Paul writes, I am sure that neither death nor life will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 38 and 39. Death does not separate us from the Lord. We continue to exist and there is still hope even though we die. Uh, Paul writes, 2 Timothy 4, 6 to 8, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, all of these images are about his approaching death. Okay, I'm about to die. It's a poetic way of saying I'm about to die. I'm being poured out my departure. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul's about to die. Is that the end for Paul? Not at all. He doesn't say that's it. I'm not going to exist anymore. Instead, he says, now there is a hope laid up for me after I die and for all who love disappearing. Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. One of those strange paradoxes, you die and you get life. Okay, but that's the way the scriptures teach about death. So the idea there is that we continue to exist after physical death. The question then, the nature of the question, what happens when we die is, how does that all work? Where do we go? What does that existence look like for Christians particularly? And so I'm going to tell you that I know of three basic views. You might know of another view, and if you do, come talk to me. I'd like to hear it. And, uh, but, but as far as where I sit, I know of three views. Uh, one view that what happens when we die is we go to either paradise or Tartarus. Okay? Some might say this is about you go to Hades or to the grave, but usually it's described in these two ways as paradise and Tartarus. Uh, let's go to Luke 16. I'll show you where this comes from. Luke 16. So this view takes a couple of Jesus' teachings as the answer to the question, what happens when you die? And it uh, says that Jesus is the one who answered this already and answered it finally and, and permanently. Uh, Luke 16 and verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died, verse 22, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So this view would take Jesus' words literally. In fact, a lot of people would argue that this is not a parable, that this is an actual story of what happened when some, these two people died. These were two real people, and they died, and this is what happened. So according to this view... This is what happens when someone who is righteous like Lazarus dies. They go to Abraham's bosom or to a place of comfort. And when someone who is evil like the rich man, they die, they go to a place of torment. And so paradise and Tartarus are just two words used to describe paradise. Of course, the good and Tartarus, the bad. And that combines with Jesus' words to the thief on the cross. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay, and so today... Even though they're going to die physically, you will be with me in paradise, a place of comfort, indicating that he is blessing him. Sometimes we would even say saving him, uh, but that's the idea. The other part of Tartarus comes from this passage, 2 Peter 2 and 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. The word cast them into hell means to put them in Tartarus, okay, which is a Greek word for the, the area of Hades where the wicked are punished. So, you see you've got people who are angels here who are in this place just like that rich man in the story of Jesus. They're in a place of, 
of pain and discomfort where the righteous are in paradise. And so that is one view that when we die, we go to one of those places, either paradise or Tartarus. The problem with this view is that it presumes that a judgment has already taken place. Because there's a judgment by which you go to paradise or Tartarus, and that judgment is, by definition, before the final judgment. So the final judgment sort of becomes a, fine, a formality. Okay? It's already happened. It's already been decided. You already know where you are and where you're going to spend eternity. Final judgment is just sort of like, oh yeah, this is why. Uh, but there is already a judgment that's taken place. The other problem with this view is that it leaves no room for the idea of the resurrection of the body. Okay? Instead, this view says that the spirit goes to be in one of these places and it just sort of stays there. Final judgment sort of confirms it. But there's no idea like in the New Testament that the spirit re-inhabits the body and the body is transformed. You don't see that in this view of paradise and Tartarus. A second view of what happens when we die is that we go directly to God's presence. Uh, Philippians 1. Philippians 1. So this would be, at this stage, uh, we go to heaven and we're going to go be with the Lord. Philippians 1 and uh, I want verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, then it, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Philippians 1.23 I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So this view would say, see, Paul is going to depart. When he dies, he's going to go be with Christ. And so that would be, he goes directly there. Christians go to be with the Lord. It's not clear what happens in this view to those who don't belong to Jesus. That's not really discussed by this view. This view is just about what happens to Christians, and that's understandable. Uh, in my estimation, the major mark in favor of this view is the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, there are a number of scenes where the righteous dead are in heaven with God around the throne, worshiping the Lamb, celebrating the successes of God's plan of judgment on the world, and then celebrating the overthrow of Babylon. So there's a lot to say from Revelation in support of this view. But the problem with this view, as I see it, is that the New Testament teaches that our bodies will be resurrected. So you have the soul or the spirit leaving the body going to be with Jesus, and then going back to the body, and Jesus coming back to be with the resurrected body. So, we just don't see that expressed. That's my issue with this, is that we just don't see that whole idea of, we're going to go be with the Lord, then depart the Lord, then the Lord's going to come be with us, we're going to re-inhabit the body, and we're going to be resurrected, and then be with the Lord again. There's a lot of movement there that's not described in the New Testament. Okay, a third view is that we're unconscious until Jesus' return. This is 1 Thessalonians 4. By the way, you're going to look at a lot this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4. <clears throat> in 1 Thessalonians 4, you have, beginning in verse 13, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. 
So the term that Paul uses in this text to describe the dead is the term fallen asleep, those who have fallen asleep in Christ. And the idea is they are, in this passage, asleep in verse 16 and waiting for the Lord to return, and they rise. That's the only action you see for the dead in Christ. In verse 16, they rise. And so the, there's no indication that they're somewhere else until that moment. The indication appears to be that they're dead, and then Jesus comes and they are raised. There's no sense that they're currently in the presence of Jesus and they have to go back and re-inhabit their bodies. Okay? There's just the sense that in some way they're dead, Jesus comes and they sort of reawaken, and I think that's part of the falling asleep image. Now, sleep, that idea doesn't mean that they're not continuing to live. Okay? We don't die just because we're asleep, but it does mean that they're in a different kind of consciousness, uh, at least that can mean that. Um, no, that's not what I want. Go back. There. Okay. Sorry. Um, I thought there was another passage that's going to be here, but evidently the guy who made the PowerPoint messed up on that part. But Paul says in another place, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 18, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, if Jesus hasn't been raised, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And that same idea of falling asleep. Paul doesn't believe that, but he's saying, if... If Jesus hasn't been raised, then those who have died or fallen asleep have perished. They're just dead. It's all over for them. So the problem with this view, that we're unconscious until Jesus returns, is not really the timing. Because when Paul says, I'm going to go be with Christ, that could be immediately or that could be after a period of time. The problem with this view is revelation. The idea that in revelation, the dead appear to be both conscious and with God in the book of Revelation. And so, they're crying for justice, they're celebrating the Lamb's victory, all those things we said in the second part. So, I think you could see, I have yet to come to a conclusion that satisfies me in the answer to this question. I have to say, if you're going to pin me down and push me, I lean toward the idea of being unconscious until Jesus' return, but I can't put all the facts together in a way that satisfies all the evidence. I try to be fair about it, as I've tried to be this morning, but that's the conclusion I come to. Whatever your view, I want you to remember two things. First, Death is not the end, and that's important because when we see these passages in the New Testament, they are intended to comfort us when we die and when we deal with death. And second, the righteous dead are blessed. We may not be able to fully articulate exactly how that's going to work. I don't think anyone can, but instead we can trust that things are going to be good, especially we're going to be with the Lord eternally, and that's what we're going for. So wherever we might end up with a different view of that, that's what I think we can decide about what happens when we die. All right. I have 11 minutes. Can dead people see us? This question is about the sort of popular conception that the dead are still with us, sort of like a ghost idea, that they're still near us, around us, observing us. So I want to remind you what we read in the beginning. Do you remember Samuel coming back from the dead to talk to Saul? And Samuel says to Saul, really, almost precisely what he said to Saul when he was alive. Basically, all this bad stuff's happening because you turned away from the Lord and the Lord's forsaken you and he's taken the kingdom away from you. There is only one bit of news that's new and that is tomorrow you're going to die and you're going to come be with me in the realm of the dead. So, is Samuel aware of what's going on in the broader world? Well, maybe, but I'm not sure that we can chalk too much up to that, especially considering the fact that he had the role of a prophet before and so perhaps there's a prophecy element to it. Uh, so let me give you a few bits of evidence about this question, can dead people see us? 
as I've hinted at already, in Revelation, the book of Revelation, Christians in heaven are deeply aware of the events on earth. Particularly, they appear to be intimately connected and invested in what's going on on earth. They're interested because on earth, that's where God's plan is playing out. They want to know what's going on on earth, and they want to celebrate that with God and with uh, the angels and all the, the heavenly beings. But I will say this about the Revelation material. That seems to be more about broader trends than about specific situations. You don't see in the book of Revelation the righteous in heaven fixating on and focusing on one person, one righteous person. Perhaps, you know, if we're talking about the beast or something like that, but not the idea of them following every righteous person and seeing everything they do and say. You got the rich man in Luke 16 who is in torment and he says, I've got brothers. Send Lazarus to my brothers so that they can repent. Is he aware of what's going on on earth? doesn't really appear to be to me. He's aware that he's got brothers and they haven't died yet. I mean, they're not there with him. But not aware in the sense that he's saying, I got this brother and he was at the store yesterday and I need you to go get him. You know, he's doing this, he's doing... There's nothing like that. It's more broad than that. The heavenly beings are definitely interested in what's going on on earth, especially the angels, especially what God's doing on earth. You remember Daniel gets the attention of the angels in the book of Daniel. Angels long to look into the gospel message, but... Again, the specifics of that are very vague. So if you're going to ask me the question, can dead people see us, which one of you has, then I have to answer, there's no indication of the dead observing every single event on earth or especially the specifics of my day, that kind of thing. There is some indication that they might be aware of the events on earth. But the connection to me seems to be more about righteousness. It's not, as I see it, well, I just have relatives and I'm concerned about how they're getting along. It seems to be about, if I do have relatives, I'm concerned about their spiritual state, like the rich man who is in torment. He wants his brothers to be saved. The concern seems to be about, I want my brothers who are there on earth to be vindicated by God. The concern seems to be more about that than about how the family is doing. So I do feel a need, before I leave this question, to push back a little bit on that idea of, of the dead as ghosts and the dead just sort of being around us. I understand that we miss the people that we've lost, that we love, and that we feel a sense of loss. And in many ways, we remember them so vividly that we could, you know, especially I'm thinking of, of couples that have been married for 50 or 60 years where you knew what that person was thinking before they thought it. And I think there's some, there's some deep emotional uh, connection going on there that, that maybe we're going to feel things that are, are difficult to explain. But the idea that, that the dead are somehow surrounding us or with us, that comes from our popular culture more than from the Bible. I don't think we can say that God says that's the way the dead people uh, live and work, and that's the way that, that is today. So cherish the memories you have of those who you've lost. Live for the good and just know that wherever they are, they want you to do what's right. They want what's best for you now. I think that's the important thing to say about that. Third question, will we know each other in heaven? <clears throat> will we recognize each other? Particularly, will we know our loved ones there? And we're talking here really about the resurrection and the nature of the spiritual body. So I want to say a couple of things about that. Uh, let's look f first in Luke chapter 20. Luke 20. You can see it's funny. I got these questions from all from different people. 
But they all kind of work together because they're all sort of about the same general idea. Luke 20 and verse 34. So what I take that to mean is you guys are thinking about this a lot. I probably need to talk about it. Uh, Luke 20 and verse 34, where the Sadducees challenged Jesus about the resurrection, he says, Luke 20, 34, Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord of the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Notice that Jesus also affirms death is not the end, that these men continue to live even though they're physically dead. But he says specifically, and what's relevant to our question, is the idea in verse 34 and 35 that they don't marry in the resurrection, nor are they given in marriage. So it is a different kind of existence, like angels. Especially, I think, Jesus' point is that our relationships toward others have changed. And some of the bonds that we have while on earth are different in that. So really, what we're asking then is not, are we going to be married in heaven? I think that's obvious that Jesus has answered that. No, that's not the way that existence is. No, instead, the question is sort of a question about the resurrection body, like, Are you going to look the way you look now? Am I going to be able to know you or see you? And particularly, I mean, this is emotional to us because we have those who we love who we want to know if we're going to spend eternity with them. You know, is that a part of that? Or is that just something that we don't even think about in in the next life? So I want to say a little bit about that. And particularly, I want to to talk for just a second. I'm looking at that clock. I want to talk just a second about the resurrection body. Then I want to tell you what I think. Uh, based on uh, the passage we started in first, or the passage we went to a moment ago in First Thessalonians four, so First uh, Corinthians fifteen is where I want to go just momentarily. First Corinthians fifteen. I just want to point out one aspect when we talk about the resurrection body or the body that we will have when our body is changed into something that is eternal. The image Paul uses in First Corinthians fifteen is a seed that then is given a different body. So you plant a seed, and then the seed, you don't see the seed growing up. The seed becomes a plant. It becomes something different. And so in in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 37, he says, What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body just as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. So I think what he is describing here is, that God is going to change the body. And he talks about that down in verse uh, 51, 52. Uh, God's going to change the body into something immortal, but that's going to have some correlation to what the body was before. Like a seed has a correlation to the plant it becomes. Not the same, not the same at all, but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that there could be some similarities, perhaps even features or characteristics of the body that might make recognition possible. I don't think that's out of the question, but it's not clearly stated by any stretch. When you ask the question, when we know each other, though, to me, the connection I make is the connection that throughout the Bible, death is described as a reunion or being united with other people. In fact, there's a phrase that's used so often, I don't think we even think about what it means. In the Old Testament, when someone dies, very often it says they slept with their fathers. Slept with their fathers. What, was that? what would that mean? 
It means there is a reunion of some sort with those who have gone on before. Not just they died like everybody else died, but that they died and they lived with others. Now I want to show you uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 again. And I'll tell you my conclusion and answer to this question. 1 Thessalonians 4. First Thessalonians 4 and verse 15. First Thessalonians 4 and verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then in verse 17, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. I want you to notice a couple of things. First, in verse 15, the point or the concern is whether or not we are going to be having a fate different from those who have already died. And the reassurance of Paul is, no, we are going to go up together. We will not go up before, precede those who are asleep, go to be with Jesus. So he says instead, they're going to be raised and we'll go up, verse 17, we'll be caught up together with them. Now, I don't know why Paul would focus on that if there is no sense that we know one another in the next life. Why would it matter whether we go with them or not with them? Why would it matter if we're together or we go first or they go first? Why would any of that matter if we're not going to know each other? Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. I understand there might be a concern I have for those who have gone on before and, well, are they going to be risen and that kind of thing. But, but really, the primary concern is, those are my brothers. And if they have just died and there's no hope for them to come and I'm not ever going to see them again, then that is a tragic loss. And I think the message of the New Testament is that we will see them again. And I want to point this out to you. I, I read this in our readings this week and I, it jumped out at me because, of course, I've been studying this. 2 Corinthians 4.14, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Do you see the connection? Bring us with you into his presence. Do you think Paul is expecting to know them in the next life? It's obvious that he is. And he's saying that's going to be something that we're going to do together. So will we know each other in heaven? I think it's very likely that we'll know one another in the next life. Although it appears that the nature of those relationships will be changed. All right, thank you so much for your questions. I appreciate your attention. Keep asking those questions. We'll be dismissed for our classes at this time.